The Single Track staff is making more time to ride our bikes right now, and hopefully you are too. This week, we're resharing one of our favorite podcast episodes, and we'll be back next week with an all new show. Happy trails. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Dee Tidwell. Dee is a professional coach and the founder of Train to Ride, which provides cycling-specific training programs and plans for mountain biking, road, gravel, and moto riding. He's also a two-time Big Mountain Enduro Masters champ and has worked with countless professional athletes, including members of the Yeti Fox Factory professional EWS race team. Thanks for joining us, D. Thank you, Jeff. Stoked to be here. Yeah. Well, tell us how you got into coaching. Well, so I've been in fitness for approximately 30 years now, which okay. you know may give you a little insight into my age, but I won't tell you. <laughs> you started when you were zero, so you're, you're 30. Yeah. Well, you know, I told people last week I just had my 35th dyslexic birthday. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I was a mountain biker from day one because really, you know, I started riding when riding kind of started mm-hmm. right back in the uh, in the late uh, 80s there. So um, I quickly found out in road cycling that I wasn't going to be a very good road cyclist because I carried a lot of muscle mass because I trained hard in the gym, mm-hmm. but I loved to ride. And so my first couple of cross-country races, I just got torched on the uphills, but I did the opposite on the downhills. And so I found myself getting stuck behind a lot of slow people going downhill, but then obviously me being a slow person coming uphill. So downhill was kind of up and coming with Tomac and uh, Missy Jovi and the whole crew back then. And and uh, so I started downhill racing because... Yeah. And so through the years, that's the fun part. It, I mean, that's the only reason to go up, isn't it? I mean, hello. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so whether it's fast on BMX or road or, or mountain bike, whatever, you know, that, that was my, my gig and still is to this day, actually. Um, uh, and so over the years, uh, through working through the fitness industry, for example, I started working with Missy Jovi back in like 98, 99. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of started my coaching career in, in cycling. Uh, back then was, was working with her before that I was working with pro motor guys. And then, um, or excuse me, after that, I got working in with pro motor guys and, and then pro snowboarding and pro skiing and, and kind of X games and all that good stuff. So, um, it started what I found myself in, which was very unique, I think for a professional like myself is mm-hmm. I found myself luckily at the front of these trends and being able to sort of shape and be part of the uh, evolution of training in these sports, right? Mm, Missy yeah. was ahead of her time because she was always thinking about training. Some kind of like Tomac was, and I think Tinker was as well. And and when I went into moto, I was kind of like one of a few guys, mm-hmm. just like with mountain biking, where there's only a few of us on, on tour who were actually working with pro riders mm-hmm. and same in the snow. And then same with PJ tour players. So it was really cool to just kind of evolve in the beginning of things and then now watch it now. And it's, you know, this, this bigger thing now all across all these platforms, uh, sports platforms, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So back in those early days where people just, they were just fast. Like they didn't really think about why they were fast or how they were fast. They were just kind of had figured it out on their own and they weren't necessarily working with coaches or is that, is that sort of what you found early on in those sports? Yes. Let's face it, especially for, for cycling, there's definitely a, a DNA model, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at some of the most successful cyclists in the world, 
and in history, they have a certain DNA pattern that they've they've been born with, right? Uh, especially from a cardiorespiratory system, etc. So I think they were able to, in all of these sports and most sports, get away with their talent, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily having or, or using talent magnifiers like training specifically or uh, inclusively or whatever, right? They, they were just terrific athletes who, who tapped into exactly what they were made to do. Mm, interesting. Um, so yeah, I would say that now we get to see the best of both worlds, which is why we see a constant evolution, particularly in the mountain bike sport, even in moto too. I mean, some of the things that those guys are doing in moto is just insane. But so yes, yes, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, cool. So yeah, you've been coaching for 30 years. Um, and obviously over that time, you've kind of developed various different programs. And the big one that I saw on your website that makes a lot of sense to me, and I, I don't know that I had seen it before, is something that you call the performance pyramid. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that is, like how it came about and, and how it basically works? Absolutely. So I would say that I learned it from Paul Check, who I was studying under uh, at the time in, in the early 2000s, where um, if you think of, of a pyramid and you break it into four sections, um, the base of the pyramid is, is essentially your ability to move well, which is joint mobility, muscle flexibility, overall stability. And I throw um, kind of breathing mechanics in there a little bit okay, because uh, that involves the rib cage and the diaphragm and the entire spine to go along with it. Mm-hmm. So that foundation, right, in order to create a, a nice, strong pyramid, that foundation needs to be wide, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a narrow base, you have a tall pyramid, but it can easily topple over. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, right? So we want a nice, wide base. And that nice, wide base is your ability to move to the best of your ability as an athlete. Okay. And it doesn't matter what sport. Okay. So I apply these techniques to all people that I work with. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. if it's cycling or not because it's how human movement works. Mm. You want to optimize the body, everybody's ability to move. Right. Uh, And that's basically what I see myself as, as a coach, as it relates to my job is to make somebody move better when they move better. And we'll talk a little bit later, but they're more efficient. They save energy. They can express a lot of energy. They can get, to their true strength, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So when you have that nice wide base, you start with phase one, mobility, flexibility, stability, and posture. You can then go to phase two, which is essentially muscle growth or development. Okay. Or hypertrophy is another way to put it. And so once you have the base layer of the mobility, flexibility, stability, posture, then we can go to phase two, which is hypertrophy or muscle development or muscle growth. Okay. And we have to think about not only are we creating density in the muscle, let's say, Mm -hmm. and making that muscle bigger in size. Don't think bodybuilder big, but just bigger (laughs) as it relates to density, right? Okay. And then we also strengthen the tendons, which the muscles attach to the bones, and then also the connective tissue within the joints, which are ligaments. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and then everything that attaches to that is fascia. Fascia is everywhere in the body and fascia can be strengthened as well. Hmm. Okay. So... We get strong in that second phase as it relates to um, not strength per se, but just density. Okay. What about bones? Is that is that part of it? Because I know sure it is. in a recent conversation, we were talking about how cyclists, some cyclists have like low bone density because cycling is such a like low impact uh, type of sport. So is that is that something as well that you can work on and you can you can make your bones denser? Yes, because that's an inherent benefit, right? So for people, for example, who has osteoporosis, one of the best things they can do is start weight training mm. because now you're imposing a force on the body that's more than gravity, and we do it in different planes and different directions, right? 
And that forces the bone to have to uh, adapt in all those different directions. We'll call it 3D direction, right? Or omnidirectional. So now it forces the brain to say, oh gosh, I need to strengthen my bone integrity, right? So absolutely that takes place. And then the opposite happens, like you say, cyclists, you know, struggle with, with uh, bone density issues because they do the same thing over and over in the same pattern without excessive stress, Yeah, right? Coming from the outside. That makes it too, like you're more likely to break a bone, for example, in a fall, I suppose, if you don't have that bone density. Absolutely. Absolutely. So third phase then, uh, once you have phase one and two under your belt, then we start de developing strength. Okay. And, and strength is the ability to move something over a certain amount of time. Right. Um, so obviously imposing large amounts of stress um, to your body. And again, in that omnidirectional fashion, whether we're using, you know, dumbbells or free weights or Olympic bars, or, you know, we're using um, boxes or uh, balance devices or cable machines, et cetera, right. Where we're, mm -hmm. we're imposing and forcing the body to adapt good levels of uh, external force being put upon it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's how we get strong. Right. Okay. Um, we have to think about the different planes of strength too. So, you know, um, sagittal is front to back, touch toes, stand back up. Mm -hmm. Frontal plane is side to side. I want to touch, you know, the side of my knee, the side of my knee. And then um, transverse plane is the rotary pattern, right? So we want okay. to impose strength, right? Or create strength in all of those planes because especially as, as like uh, mountain bikers and moto athletes, we have those transfer um, type of forces that are going through our body while riding more yeah. so than gravel or road, right? Cause they tend to be going in a straight line for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so we have to train for those. Right. Um, and so that strength comes in play in what I call strength endurance or the ability to, to be strong for a long period of time, particularly on mountain, uh, mountain biking moto and now gravel really. I mean, cause you have to, you know, your body has to regulate micro, uh, bumps of different sources and sizes, which are very similar compared to say mountain biking, where we're, we're going through different sizes all the time. Right. Yeah. That involves a certain amount of strength. Hmm. So it matters. Okay. And even less for road, but even still it matters a lot. Yeah. And then the, the top of the pyramid is power, right. Where we, where we're creating um, speed essentially, right. Or being able to express the, the first three layers with a ton of force and a ton of speed. Mm, yeah. Okay. And then, so that's the performance pyramid and all of my programs are built upon that foundational thought process, uh, including for example, the monthly coaching, you know, it's 12 months for example, but we, in, I interweave, uh, those through the entire process and it still works in a, in a seasonal fashion, if you will. Okay. Uh, for the monthly. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. seems like a, a lot of mountain bikers or, you know, just cyclists in general might be tempted to want to jump to like, you know, the, the second to the top or the top level, you know, that strength or power and speed level. Do you find people, you know, wanting to get ahead like that and, and trying to skip those first two levels? Cause it seems like the first two levels are pretty basic. And most of us, we might think, Oh, I, you know, I've got that. Like I've got that just kind of functional capability. Well, that is our society today, right? <laughs> yeah, in a nutshell. Yes, it seems 
most any athlete or person definitely doesn't want to go through the kind of the boring part that doesn't seem like like a whole lot of work per se. Um, but, but it really leaves them missing out on some crucial parts that will later show up in the form of fatigue, um, lack of performance, uh, or substandard, or they're not achieving what they, what they really desire to achieve, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and possibly even injury. Um, that's why I said, you know, you want your base to be really wide and not narrow, mm-hmm. right. Uh, on that performance pyramid. So it, it is a step-by-step process. Now, some people have emailed me and say, Hey, I've been working on such and such for six months. Is it okay if I just jump to phase two or phase three? And I'm like, okay, well, tell me what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure. And then, you know, I can say yes or no. Some people have asked me that question for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you have to, no matter if, like, I'll have people that, that, that buy a program two or three years ago or bought a program two or three years ago. And they'll do it each year because it works and they keep getting better. Mm-hmm. And they've asked me, do I need to do phase one and phase two, even though I've done it two years prior or three years prior? I say, yes, you have to. Yeah. Because lots have happened from the time that you ended that six month program. I would say gone through your season, taken a bit of an off season, mm-hmm. and now you're starting again. There's a lot of stuff that's that you've got injured. There's been different stresses that have been applied. I mean, COVID for gosh, you know, all kinds of stuff that's taken place. So yes. You have to because your body changes, it develops, it ages for God's sakes, right? So <laughs> yes, I highly recommend that you always do the lower levels, if you will, okay. before going to the next. Yeah, yeah, that's good advice. And it, I mean, it almost seems like something that a lot of people could benefit from, even non-athletes. You know, it's it sounds like really, you know, almost like physical therapy, like where you're you're making sure that your body is moving the way it's supposed to move. And I don't know, I just think of like my 80 year old neighbors, you know, like this is the kind of thing that even for them, like that's really important, you know, being able to still move and and walk and, and do all those things without, you know, causing further injury and just making sure your body is, is ready to take on that, that new level of strength and fitness. Yeah. And that's perfectly said that you're totally right. And I really don't need to add to it. I mean, I could. No, I mean, no, you're, you're absolutely right. That's the way I treat everybody that comes in here. We start with evaluation. I build a program based off of that and some other things. And it usually always starts with the corrective first two phases. Yeah. Well, I noticed one of the programs you offer is specific to electric mountain bike riding and racing. I'm curious to know how that's different from more traditional mountain bike training. Well, first, I think we have to acknowledge that mountain bike training is way different than road training, mm-hmm. right? And our industry has built itself on our industry. I'll say mountain biking industry has built is, itself over the last couple of decades on I've got to get my road training in in order to ride myself in the shape, right? Yeah. And, and that probably worked for XC. I mean, when, when cross country riding was sort of the dominant form of racing, I, I bet that made sense. But right in the years since, that's, that's just one part of mountain biking. Exactly right. Yep. I totally agree with that. And so now we have bikes that are 50 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they exhibit their own torque, right? And or speed with relatively little input, if you will, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. take a lot of input if you're on level three, for example, right? to go fast, right? So weight, we have 
a lower center of gravity, which we've gotten a little bit used to in mountain bikes, but they, you know, e-bikes tend to have a little bit even lower than, than most mountain bikes. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be a smidge longer, perhaps even, I think on average, I'm going to just kind of throw it out there. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. So those two things, you know, one of my hashtags is hashtag uphilling, right? Now we have this whole capability of uphilling, which is a different skill set than downhilling because now we're working and trying to choose lines going uphill because we can. Mm -hmm. Whereas before we weren't working as it relates to pedaling and really using our upper body, for example, as much um, as we do. And so now we have this bigger combination, this more dynamic ability to go fast uphill, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Yeah. And it, and it changes things a lot because now, you know, downhilling, there's, there's a lot of hip engagement. There's a lot of leg work. We still have a lot of upper body work, but going uphill, there's more upper body work involved in mountain biking because we have to get up and over water bars. We have to get up and over features and rocks and, and you name it. Right. And we use that force that comes from our hands through our body to our legs to create. this. Right. Thing, right? So now we have a 50 pound mountain bike. We're going uphill on that. We have to be able to tame with skills. Right. And if you don't think that involves some strength and some stability, <laughs> you know, and good breathing mechanics, that's not true. Right. Right. And then the ability to, to, you, you actually, if anybody's been on an e-bike, the first thing, you know, people think about is, oh gosh, that's quick. Right. And there's a little bit of a reaction where they get thrown back a little bit, or they're not used to being on a bicycle, having to deal with, with a, um, I'll call it a G force, but it's not really a G force. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, you're getting yeah. thrown back into the seat of your car by, from a G force from acceleration. But mm-hmm. there's, there is, there's an acceleration factor that your body has to, and your brain has to work through right. to understand how to modify and use too. So there is, for me in my programs there, it's, it's more about those things than it is actually, Oh, I don't know, maybe a, a an average road riding thought would be, you know, I want to get my VO2 max up or I want to be able to mm-hmm. exert more water, whatever. Right. So those are, those are fine and good. But for the most part, when you're riding an e-bike, I think those few thoughts are really what's kind of makes it different. Yeah. And then you throw the, the downhill in there and you've got to move around a 50 pound downhill rig now. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's definitely, uh, especially for folks who haven't tried an e-bike yet, there's this, this thought that the bike does a lot of the work for you. And, you know, I've, I've tested several e-bikes recently and, you know, I mean, I'm maxing out my heart rate on a lot of the climbs and, you know, the thing you were mentioning about like sort of how you balance on the bike and how you need to lean forward more in the climbs, like that's something, yeah, that I've totally noticed you have to do differently, you know, just to, you're riding things that are so steep that you wouldn't normally hmm. even attempt on a, a normal bike. And so, yeah, you it's a different posture is required. It's, it's a whole different yeah, just way of approaching the climbs. And then on the descents, for sure, yeah, it's a heavier bike. I mean, for me, it feels a lot more like downhill than enduro or, or any of those other sort of disciplines that maybe people are more familiar with. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. I haven't gotten a race one yet, but I'm definitely looking forward to both riding or having one and, and racing too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because if I can take the, the sucky part out, which for me, <laughs> going uphill, oh, I just don't want to do it anymore, but you know what I mean? Right. So now it's going to be fun again. 
Right, right. Until you start challenging yourself because you're like, well, the normal trails are kind of boring on an e-bike because, you know, I can climb those on my regular bike. I need to find some even steeper and, you know, even rockier and even longer. Yeah. So, right. Even longer. Exactly. Yeah. I can do two or three laps on that downhill trail instead of one. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of, of time and timing, part of the pitch is that your programs don't require hours of cardio or expensive equipment. So do you, have you found that people really hate cardio so much that, that they just avoid training altogether? Like they just assume it's going to be terrible and I have to, you know, just spend hours out of my day doing it. Well, I think going back to my prior comment about us, you know, as, as mountain bikers early on, like you said, with cross country thinking that we had to spend, you know, a ton of road miles and base miles. Um, I, I think, you know, we're, we, we still have that as our normal thought process as riders, right? Mm-hmm. But, but my, my approach is, is that if a mountain biker or a cyclist in general is looking for a training program, they're mm-hmm. probably trying to take their performance to the next level somehow, some way, whether it's an event or to beat their buddies or a race or whatever, right? So to me, those people already have this really good foundation of fitness, mm-hmm. right? We're not dealing with, I mean, we are now because of COVID, we're dealing with a whole bunch of beginner cyclists or, you know, cyclists that haven't ridden their mountain bikes for, I don't know about you, but you know, I was amazed at how many 1990s mountain bikes I saw during COVID. It was <laughs> Yeah, it was impressive. It was awesome. Yeah, it was like a museum out at the trails, right? Totally (laughs) sketchy. Oh my gosh! But um, so my assumption is is that there's there is a there is an adequate base for cardio Mm -hmm. for mountain bikers, right? In particular, Um, and so from that, what most people are dealing with as it relates to, um not achieving maybe what they want to do or, or wanting to go to the next level is back to their biomechanical stuff with the performance pyramid. Right. So, you know, their, their whole posterior chain is tight. Their, their core is weak. Their glutes are turned off. Their posture is poor uh, because, you know, they sit at a desk all day, let's say, or, you know, which is now at home or whatever, it doesn't matter. But um, so the influence of the home office or the office as it relates to posture, right. And what that does to the equation that kind of stuff can be fixed and changed in the gym. Um, it, it can't be fixed and changed on a bike because that's really the seated workplace is really nothing. It's not much different than a cycling position, right? So the last thing you want to do on, and this is our, on average, the average commutes about 30 minutes is to get up, eat it, it, you know, eat sitting down, get in your car for 30 minutes, go sit at work for, you know, eight hours, sit in your car, coming home for 30 minutes, eat again for 30 minutes or whatever it takes. And then watch television for, you know, an average two to three hours, which they say is what's the average American at least watches television. Yeah. And then, and then try to throw on performance on a bike that does the same thing. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So yeah, I come from that kind of mindset. Uh, more than the cardio aspect of things, mm. right? And we can do all of this stuff in the performance period without much equipment. Yeah, you know the basics that you have at home, you can get a lot done with that. And you know, and, and, and I build my programs based off of that process too. Okay, well, particularly since COVID, when I did a bunch of free videos during COVID, it's like, okay, let's let's make stuff up. Let's take inner tubes and tie old uh, uh, grips to it, and now we've got a band, you know, to <laughs> yeah. work with. 
let's turn our bike over and use our foot on the brake and pedal for an arm ergometer. I mean, yeah. I put that one on pink bike, I think actually, but <laughs> so we get creative and there's a lot you can do at home that can help not only build your cardio, but make your body more efficient because that's what it is too, is I want to change the way people think, especially as it relates to, we have our way as mountain bikers. I've pushed this. Mountain bikers need to train differently than road cyclists. Mm. I want to take that idea and say, hey, road cyclists, there's a different way to train. Let's have you train like a mountain biker, Mm. and it's going to make you a better road or gravel rider. Interesting. Instead of the other way around, right? I'm just reversing what's been going on for decades Mm -hmm. with more of an athletic concept. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to develop is train like a mountain biker. And yes, I know there's camps and people are pretty staunch on their camps and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, look, (laughs) the best in the world, the smartest in the world, all of these people, they always learn from other people to make themselves better. Yeah. Right. So yes, roadies, gravel riders, moto guys can learn from mountain bikers. Moto can learn from road. Road can learn. So that's kind of where I go with my pitches on my programs. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I, I mean I could totally see. It sounds like a lot of it is strength based, and people are afraid. Then they're like, "Well, I just spent all this money on my bike. Like now I got to get like a bunch of weights, or I got to get you know gym membership." And you know, it makes a lot of sense to find ways that you can do that at home. It seems like a great a great pitch. And then also, I really like what you're saying about. Uh, the, the training model, it's kind of going full circle because, you know, mountain biking and gravel, those are kind of the new kids on the block in terms of cycling. And, you know, so a lot of the things that we do, they were passed down from road cycling because it's been around longer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's cool to, to think about how this feeds back into road, um, which is, you know, it's kind of our, our big brother, our big sister That's out right. there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the things that your programs focus on is soft tissue therapy. Is this something that folks can also work on at home with like foam rollers and massage guns? Or is this one of those areas where working with like either a physical therapist or a massage therapist in person is beneficial? Yes and yes. <laughs> a little of both. So, yes, exactly. I try to, in all my programs, empower people to be able to um, self-assess because I, all my programs have self physical evaluation. So they self-assess them. And then they also have this soft tissue component to it where, you know, the, the myofascial stretching, for example, um, and then, uh, the soft tissue therapy using, uh, like you said, for example, foam rollers or lacrosse balls, uh, massage sticks, things like that to work through tight, uh, adhesed tissue. It's really important, right? Cause those are, those are energy blocks, they are efficiency blocks, and then they're also um, blocks as it relates to the body being able to move well, right? Uh, and then we have what we've all experienced, you know, uh, trigger points and adhesions and things, and you just don't have the same range of motion. Um, you don't have the same capability of muscle contraction and relaxation, which is important, right? So, yes, being all my programs include education on how to do stuff on their own. And I always want to empower people to be able to do that stuff on their own because look, I want people to be able to fire me essentially. Like (laughs) I'm doing great. 
you've taught me enough. I can go off and do this on my own, right? Mm. Now, mm-hmm. the second yes is I have a system here when people come and visit me where I have a strong network that I refer out to. And I think everybody should. Mm. Uh, just like you mentioned, a physical therapist, a massage therapist, a chiropractor, um, even a doctor, a general MD, and then an orthopod as well. So I have my network that I refer out to based off of what people's needs are. Um, so sometimes somebody will come in and be like, look, this tissue is such and such and such. Um, you know, your pelvis is off here. Well, I'm going to send you over to this person over here for some dry needle trigger point therapy, a pelvis evaluation and, and correction, right? And then mm-hmm. that PT will send me what their findings are. I can take those findings and then I'm apply them to what my findings are to even get more specific with their program. So referring out, if in doubt, is what kind of a motto is that I have that I've learned to use other allied professionals is pretty awesome. Not only that, but the other thing about that, though, too, Jeff, is that people learn more about themselves. Hmm. And that's what it's all about, right? So I said it earlier. It's like I, I need to be able to teach people why we're doing things, but I have to figure out the why first. And so many in my industry um, especially since the advent of CrossFit, which drives me bananas, um, <laughs> they don't understand why they should do things based off of the why. So the why is really important. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of folks probably are, are surprised maybe the first time that they go to like a physical therapist because, you know, you're going to this expert and you're like, okay, they're going to fix me. But I think what ends up happening most times is you just get a lot of homework. And so it is that combination of they're going to give you exercises and things to do, but ultimately you need to do those on your own, right? Like they're not going to be there doing them for you. Yes. And unfortunately, there is a big chasm between the end of PT and the end result of having functional fitness again. There's a big chasm there that exists. and. I see myself as a bridge between physical therapy and performance. And because a lot of people, like you say, they do their homework, right? That's specific to the injury. But then how, and we call that isolation, right? We're isolating, oh, my knee hurts. It's been injured. I got to isolate and try to, you know, treat it and then do things that are going to help the knee get better, right? But how do we integrate it back into the ability to squat and lunge and, and, and pull and do the things in life that aren't in isolation? And that's an important component. And basically the two parts of that performance pyramid too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, have you seen a shift in the mix of your clients over the years between racers and and folks who just want to ride to have fun? Yeah. Good question. Um, I, I started enduro mountain bike training, which is the, the parent of train to ride, um, over eight years ago. Um, one, because, as an hourly professional, I only make money when I work and that is hard sometimes. Right. <laughs> right. So I wanted to make something online that can make me money, you know, mailbox money essentially is what they call it sometimes. And I was working with Yeti and, and I'm still a Yeti ambassador after it's been 10 years, I think. So I'm, I'm fortunate and grateful to be still be working with such a great brand. But so I was working with a Yeti and they were at that time, I just missed working with Richie because he, we were actually talking mm-hmm. and he <laughs> funny thing is, is he couldn't afford me oh, no. <laughs> at that time because he was, he was just going from downhill mm-hmm. and they shut and yet he just shut off their downhill program and it was going zero. 
So I was already working on that in the background of my enduro mountain bike training mm-hmm. because nobody was servicing the enduro market, which was like one or two years into itself as a, as an EWS, I think. Yeah. And so I wanted to just step up and just kind of fill that void of gosh, this enduro racing, this repetitive downhill stuff is gosh, six downhill runs and eight downhill runs in two days. That's a lot instead of practice one run and race one run and be done. Right. Yeah. Um, and selfishly, I also wanted to get back to riding uh, and racing again because it'd been 10 years since I had. But hmm. so it was built on let's work and help this type of racing athlete or really a gravity athlete. Mm-hmm. But over the years, then, and why I created MTB Strong, which is one of my one of my downloadable programs, was more for the average mountain biker. Okay. Because I wanted to get away from just the, the strict niche or the niche of, of enduro racing mm-hmm. and actually be able to help m- mountain biking community in general. So that was my first program that way. And then that was uh, a couple years ago. And then I started my membership. And now with train a ride, I really, just like we talked about a little bit earlier, I really wanted to take the concepts that I'd created with the mountain bike training and say, this is going to help my other two wheel athlete friends in gravel mm-hmm. and road and, you know, moto is kind of a given, but that's just me wanting to get back into moto, which is why I included it. But, um, <laughs> and so that's when train to ride was born, um, is to really be able to help the, the weekend warrior we'll call them or the average rider of any sport of the four to somebody who wants to be a pro. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Is it different what those two different groups are looking for? I mean, obviously, I would assume athletes, right? They want to just be as fast as they can be and they want to win. What is it that the more casual riders are looking to do? Are they, are they just trying to be more comfortable or they, they trying to have more fun or are they trying to show off for their friends and look at on Instagram? Like what, what kind of, what do you think drives the, the recreational rider to seek out this kind of training? Funny, but you actually mentioned them pretty much you know, the average response there. So it, it's all of that, right? So like for the average, the average rider, let's say mm. the weekend warrior, it's, you know, it tends to be a little more PR based. I feel like I'm stuck for the last three years. I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm on Strava and I kind of fiddle with it a little bit and I, I just want to be a little bit faster on that. Or, or like you said, it's like, yeah, I'm tired of being at the back of the group. I want to be in the middle of the pack now with my buddies, or I don't want to have them waiting, you know, at the top or to those, you know, now we have, geez, gravel's blowing up with, with, with all kinds of different, um, events to do. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is a lot of people come and say, I want to do a certain event. And so we start prepping it uh, for, you know, uh, a lot of people buy my programs for events. Yeah. Just to finish, I'm guessing for a lot of them. I mean, they're not, they're not trying to win. They just want to do it and feel good at the end. hundred percent. That's exactly right. Yep. So it's a, it's the whole board. And, And I would imagine too, Jeff, that I'll get, I'll start hearing. I've heard some things, but now that I'm expanded into, you know, three other big markets, I'm going to hear a lot more testimonies of success, which is awesome. And I love those. Those are what, you know, get me going. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the risks of overtraining, how to prevent pain and fatigue from repetitive cycling postures and more. Stay tuned. And we're back. So, D, I want to talk about some of the risks associated with overtraining. How do you know if you're overtraining and doing potentially doing damage uh, to yourself? I think the obvious ones are pain uh, that a lot of people 
don't know is related to repetitive stress, let's say, or over-repetitive stress, if that's a word sequence. And that'll show up in the form of, of kind of these niggling little aches that we get that we don't pay attention to much. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, a month later, it's like, oh, wow, I've got a full-grown blown cramp or strain or whatever, right? That started, you know, most likely, particularly for cyclists, as something that can be easily tied to overtraining. So, so the physical things that, that we notice, the pain stuff, you know, for us cyclists, we get, we get base of the neck um, skull pain. We get trap pain mm-hmm. between the shoulder blade pain, back pain, and then hip and knee is, is really kind of the common areas, not to mention elbow and wrist. Um, it, I mean, it's good if you're switching from road to, to mountain bike because you're at least your, your wrists are, uh, switching positions, right? Which is good. Oh, right. Um, but you know, road cyclists and gravel are so fixed in their positions that it's super common to get the same injuries in the same place, no matter the person. Mm. And so I would say that's probably a primary is just being aware of what, what, what's going on in your body Yeah, because you're an athlete who is pretty fixed. It's pretty rare to have such a fixed positioned athlete like it is for road and gravel cyclists if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So I would say the physical, I mean, you have, I I like to say too, for people, there's three types of fatigue that, that, that I teach people about one is mental or, or nervous system fatigue. And that's where you just don't have your balance is off. You just can't, for example, if you're on a regular bike, mountain bike, and you're going uphill, you you can't hit, you didn't hit that line that you always hit. Right. Mm -hmm. You just don't feel right. Right. Your all your balance, your coordination, your, your proprioception capability is all just low. It's lower, right? Yeah. That's nervous system fatigue. And or you can't hit that 300 watt, you know, or 400 watt, you know, sprint uh, level that you might have uh, three weeks ago, let's say. Mm-hmm. You just, no matter how hard you try, you can't get above 260, right? Sprint work is really strong nervous system based work, right? So there's nervous system fatigue. There's physical fatigue where, my muscles are just, I'm just tired. Gosh, you know, um, there's a soreness that's involved, you know, that you feel, uh, you just like right now my legs are sore and I just, I can't move like I normally move. Mm-hmm. So there's that, there's that deep soreness, you know, and it's just like, Oh gosh, there's that muscle soreness. So that's muscle <laughs> soreness. The second one. And then the third one is both when your <laughs> nervous system is torched and your muscle system is torched. Yeah. Right. And so that's a bad, that's a bad place to be. And I would say that, you know, cyclists, particularly road, because they have so much volume that they deal with as it relates to training, it's really easy to get into both those patterns and they tend not to rest enough. Hmm. The average cyclist uh, does not rest enough um, because they think like many athletes, more is better, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have things like the the common heart rate, right? You do the, the, the common heart rate pulse check in the morning. And if you're, you know, between... Oh gosh, it's been a long time since I've used, but something like eight to twelve beats per minute off. You know, right? We know that that's something that is an indication that there's some overtraining going on. Hmm. Um, chronic dehydration, the in, the inability or the difficulty to feel like you're hydrated, is another. Lightheadedness when standing up um, is one. So that's a blood pressure issue, right? That when you, typically when there's uh, some overtraining going on, your blood pressure is can, can drop, mm-hmm. um, for some people, lack of motivation, trouble sleeping. 
And then obviously, like I mentioned before, the downturn and the effort of your performance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm finding myself identifying with a lot of those, right? I've experienced all of that. And, and part of it, you know, when you're talking about like your nervous system and your, your proprioception, you're not hitting lines you normally can hit. You know, I, I have that, I don't know, at least every few rides. And I've always just thought like, well, you know, you have good days and bad days, but now it's sounding like, you know, maybe some of that is a sign of overtraining. And I, I recently noticed I, I use like a Garmin watch to track heart rate and, and, uh, my rides and things. And in the app, it has a thing that, that kind of tracks your training and it, I noticed mine recently, it was saying like unproductive, your training is unproductive. Mm. And, and then I was thinking like, like you were saying with the road riders where it's like, you know, Oh, I, I'm, if I'm unproductive, I need to just work harder. I need to do more, more is more. But then I looked closely and it said I was being unproductive because I was overtraining. It was saying you're doing too much. And to actually get back into that, like product productive zone, you need to dial your training back. And so yeah, it sounds like there are a number of different things we can look to 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 let us know that we're we're overtraining and and that's actually not helping us. It actually could be hurting us. Yeah, and like you said, there's there's a lot of tools out there that can help people, you know, really kind of zone in on where they're losing performance. Uh, there's a lot of you know the apps and the and the rings and the the wristbands and all the things that you you know the Garmin watch, like you said. Um, one thing I tell people is is usually an undertrained athlete will beat a more skilled overtrained athlete. Interesting. Right? So if you're fresh and you have just a little less skill than your buddy and he's a little better than you, but he's tired, you're probably going to beat him. So if you have a mindset when it relates to training of you, so like most of my programs are blocked out in three or four work weeks followed by a week of active recovery. And they're always that way. So that's undulation periodization, right? Where there's periodized and focused rest weeks, or in this case, a week that I mentioned, a rest week to take advantage, let the body absorb those three weeks of work. Um, Because you, you get better, not when you work, you get better when you rest. That's when your body improves. And I don't think very many people know that actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just reading a science book with, with my son and it was talking about the brain and it said like that the brain actually is, does way more work when you're sleeping than when you're awake. And that's when it's like repairing and you're building memories and you know, all of these things. And yeah, it sounds like the physical body is much the same. So yeah, fascinating. Exactly. Yep. So one of the things obviously you're big on is strength training and I'm curious to know why full body strength is so important for mountain biking. I think, you know, maybe people who started out in road or maybe they have more of like a cross country background, um, tend to focus on like leg strength and, and just saying, well, we're cyclists and that's how we move. Um, but, but talk to us a little bit about full body strength and why that's important for mountain biking. Well, one thing that drives me crazy, especially for drop bar riders is, the lack of time spent in the gym as it relates to training. You know, you get your, you get your, your four weeks of, of strength training 
you know, with the leg extensions and the leg curls and the chest press and the lat pull downs. And then, and then you're good to go quote, you know, quote, unquote, right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, like the, what is wrong with that picture? Um, which kind of, it's like, I, I don't know anybody that rides a bike, a normal bike and never put their hands on the handlebars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we put our hands on handlebars, right? So we have four points of contact on a bike. Right. And we're only concerned about two of them. Well, that doesn't make any sense because I know for a fact that road and gravel riders, obviously because mountain and moto are a given, you need a lot of upper body torque to transfer, you know, into my feet. But it starts with my hands. Right. Right. So one thing is, is if your legs are the engine, then your core and your upper body are the transmission. You can think of it that way. Right. They're transmitting forces. Right. My core, my glutes, et cetera, the middle of my body is transferring forces that are being created from my hands and go into my legs, mm-hmm. right? So to not take care of your transmission, yet expect a bigger engine to be put on a stock transmission, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? If you're going to modify your motor, you've got to modify your transmission, uh, right? And so... This is why I want the whole concept of let's take the mountain bike training idea and and provide it to road and gravel cyclists so that they can be stronger, better. Their endurance, again, their efficiency, I've said these things before, all is going to improve, mm. right? Their sprint ability, which is a big thing, right, that we, we need to have when uh, uh, their standing climbing ability um, for the drop bar riders. Those are all things that, man – if your upper body is stronger, then you have the ability to increase all of those. Like your wattage can go up by having stronger arms and shoulders, you know? Um, and the other thing too, that, that I just thought about, um, is our head is attached to our shoulders, right? Via our spine, our spine goes down to our sacrum and our hips, which are ilium. And that's what we sit on. Our spine really needs um, upper body stability and strength because off our spine, people don't typically know this, but our rib cage attaches to each vertebrae mm. intimately with fascia and connective tissue like uh, tendons and ligaments, mm-hmm. right? So our rib cage actually attaches to every vertebrae of our spine um, except for the lumbar spine. So that's a big deal. There's a lot of range of motion that happens in the, from the vertebrae to the rib cage, and that's breathing mechanics. Ah, right. Okay. And then the muscles of the head typically attach in that upper kind of sh- shoulder blade area and mm-hmm. go up and attach to the head. Mm-hmm. The front comes down to the clavicles. You have to have strong posterior carriage muscles, which is part of posture, in order to hold your head up in an extended position for long periods of time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you don't think head extension affects your body's ability to breathe, you're wrong. It totally does. <laughs> right. 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 And so if you have weaknesses in any of these systems, as it relates to anything above your legs, mm-hmm. it's going to show up in weakness in some way, uh, on your bike in, in some form, mm-hmm. again, whether it's endurance, strength, power, uh, longevity, aches and pains, fighting off the build uh, for mountain bikers in particular, but crashing, you know, I've had many people send me emails. I'm so thankful I've been on your program because I crashed and I think I should have broke something, but I didn't. 
Hmm. Actually, as an example of that, there's a picture of me that my mom happened to take during EWS race, master's race up in Snowmass about four or five years ago. And it's off a road drop. Hmm. And it's a road drop that goes right into a right hand 90 degree turn. And they were waving me to slow down as I crossed the road to hit the, mm-hmm. the, the road drop. And I was going so slow, I tried to just kind of bunny hop over it. And my, and my chain ring hit the, the top of the ledge. Yeah. And the picture is of me sideways falling into this, basically this hole where the, where the trail went. And so the guy that they were slowing me down for ended up breaking his rib his collarbone, no, two ribs, his collarbone, and he punctured a lung. <laughs> also, ironically, my dad was at the bottom and saw that because I was there. Oh, wow. And so when I crashed, I broke nothing. Mm. And I broke my seat, my titanium seat. I finished the race, which was good, but wow. I didn't break anything. Yeah. And I went off of that dang thing sideways. Right? <laughs> so yeah. that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. If I wasn't strong in my my uh, attachment tissues, my, my ligaments, my tendons, et cetera, weren't strong. Mm-hmm. It could have been way uglier. Like, unfortunately it was my friend yeah. who, by the way, well, I know didn't train in the gym very much. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like too, what you're saying is that, you know, if our legs are plenty strong, then something else is going to be the limiter for us. You know, like our legs are going to feel great, but then we're going to have neck pain or, you know, we're not breathing. We're not in like a good posture for getting the most out of our breath. It sounds like that's, is that sort of what you're saying that we need to make sure that, that no part of our body is limiting our performance. Yeah. And most of us, you know, listening to this podcast right now, aren't professional road riders or gravel or mountain bike, right? But if you look, for example, just look at a professional road racer, look at their body, right? It's caved in, it's forward flexed, it's very specific, right, to what they do as, as, as a job, right? And they need to be that way and it's okay because they have to be that way, right? Um, Hmm. answer is yes well i want to switch gears real quick and mention that you're also a respected golf coach so how are golf and cycling related in terms of fitness and mobility you know jeff actually if you take this whole podcast from what we've talked about so far and you take out cycling and you put in golf or you put in snowboarder or you put in skier or tennis player, really the concepts um, that I've been trying to convey apply to golf and any sport, right? Um, I believe you on all of those except golf. So I'm going to need a little Okay. Water. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, okay. So like cycling, okay, like cycling, golf has a similar posture that you have to stand in with repetition, with time, right? And that's the golf setup posture. Uh, and from that golf set, setup posture is is you then re- go into your backswing and then to your follow through, same movements all the time, highly repetitive, uh, and so golfers also get their own specific biomechanical 
uh, issues or structure issues that are across the board the same on every human being because human beings are designed the same, right? Differently, but the same. Um, but like you'll see, you know, low back uh, uh, hypertrophy on one side of the body, upper body has different hypertrophy on the other side of the body because of how the spine moves, right? So um, you'll have, you know, adductor tightness on one side and glute tightness on the other because it's you're standing in one place and yet you're hitting it sideways without moving your lower body for the most part, right? As in like if you were to compare it yourself to a baseball player who, do, who does move their lower body. When it comes down to it, there's, there's a concept. It's the mobility stability model. Uh, Gray Cook and Mike Boyle created this in a bar on a napkin one time, I don't know, a decade ago. These are two great, great uh, thinkers in our, in our field. And that is, if you look at a skeleton, visualize a skeleton, and we'll start at the foot. For the most part, the foot is a, we call it kind of a stable joint. We, we need it to be stable so that it has good balance and, and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. The ankle is a mobile joint. The ankle, the foot can move around in all kinds of different degrees, and it's mostly because of the ankle, right? So this this mobile, uh, stable mobile model moves up the body in an alternating pattern of the stability and mobility, right? So again, we start with the foot, it's stable. Ankle mobile. So the knee then is stable because we're alternating. So for the most part, the knee is a stable joint. Yes, it flexes, extends. It rotates a little bit. For the most part, it's stable, air quotes. The hip then is like the ankle. You you can move that leg around through that hip in so many different directions, right? Mm-hmm. That's a mobile joint. The core, or the pelvis area, connected to the bottom of the rib cage, needs to be stable. That's what we call core stability, right? We mm-hmm. talked about that. Mm-hmm. The torso or the rib cage needs to be mobile. It needs to move. It needs to rotate. Yeah. Okay? Like I was talking about how those ribs move. The shoulder girdle, okay, or the scapula is designed to be stable. Mm-hmm. So that the shoulder joint can have mobility. We mm-hmm. move the arm through the mm-hmm. glenohumeral joint, right? The elbow is like the knee. Yeah, I can move somewhat, but it's still mostly stable. And then lastly, the wrist is mobile. So anytime you have tightness in a mobile joint, right? Like if I'm restricted in my hip or my to- torso, like most people are, and I'm weak in my core, just like I explained it two hours ago to a woman, um, you're going to have back pain. It's not the way the system's designed, right? So from that perspective, cycling and golf are very similar because we're still dealing with the human body and how the human body optimally is supposed to work, right? For, for both golf and for riding, our ribs need to be able to move uh, more dynamically in the golf swing, more statically uh, in cycling because we have forces that that rib cage is dealing with that are still rotational in nature, Right. If you lean into a corner in a mountain bike, you can't tell me that your down left hand isn't in a way different position as it relates to incurring force and stress through the body into that opposite side right foot that's on the pedal. It's way different, right? That's a rotary force that's going through the body, but you're not really, quote unquote, rotating, right? Mm -hmm. So that's more of a passive rotation that we resist, right? So that's Mm -hmm. resisted rotational training is, is one thing that, that I talk about. So lots of similarity, just mm-hmm. differently used. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can go on with that. That's pretty easy to do, but uh, <laughs> yeah, people get the, the gist. no, that makes sense. It, it, they're, you know, really what you're, you're doing is you're talking about our biomechanics and, and figuring out, 
um, how to build that strength and that fitness, no matter what it is we're trying to do. And I mean, I think golf is fascinating because it seems to me someone who's never really played golf, uh, it seems like that requires this sort of like level of precision and repeatability, um, maybe that we don't see in mountain biking, you know, it's like a different goal, but you're using kind of the same concepts to get there and, and to make sure that you can, you can do that over and over again. Totally. That's exactly right. And I explained that exact same thing that you just did to somebody yesterday who I was working with. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Well then is it true that mountain biking is the new golf? Do you see money like (laughs) crossover people that are maybe moving from one sport to the other or, or are there any golfers who also mountain bike? There are actually, I've had a, a numerous, numerous of a number of my golfers who have said, Oh gosh, I didn't know that you did mountain biking, but I looked <laughs> at the bottom of your email and there's a mountain biking. Yeah. So I clicked on it and same thing, right? So the opposite yeah. going the opposite direction. So hmm. I actually have, I probably have a handful of, of golfers who mountain bike and I have a bigger handful of mountain bikers who golf. So yes, it's interesting. Yeah. And by the way, they both say that both improve even though they think they're training for one versus the other. Hmm. Wow. But that's yeah. my secret. I train <laughs> yeah. Which is based off of what their body. Yeah. Does. And are there any, I mean, I feel like there should be courses where like, instead of golf carts, you're on bikes and you, you have your like, you know, little golf bag on a bike. I, I totally agree with you. Again, I, I do. <laughs> I think there's actually some, there, there are now course bikes out there that a couple of uh, courses have actually bought that, are kind of townyish looking, you know, that have, uh, you know, the ones that, that, that have the, um, the storage capacity on the back that stores use to, they're, they're similar. Um, but they're, they're, they're starting, they're thinking about it. Yeah. Seems natural. Way... But golf's much more of a closed community. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it just seems natural. I, you know, I don't know if I would want to walk around the course, but I also wouldn't want to drive. Seems like, seems like a bike would be perfect. Yeah. Well, help us get motivated for 2022. What can we do to have more fun on the mountain bike next season or maybe to progress and improve? Well, shoot, hopefully you, you've kind of learned something here that makes you want to go to the gym and, and like spend, spend a good amount of your training time in the gym working on yourself as an athlete and improving your athletic skills, right? So that's the first thing I would say is we all have a potential athletically, right? A lot of it depends, and it's a longer conversation, on what you did as a kid, as an athlete. If you did many things, which my generation, we played all kinds of sports compared to this generation, which is very unidirectional uh, as it relates to or selected sports, and they start at 10. You know, I have 10-year-old, you know, parents with 10-year-old, oh, my, my, my kid's killing everybody. He's 10, and he wants to be a golfer, and I won't work with those parents mm. and that kid because yeah. he's not going to be a great athlete. So what I tell people is be the best athlete you can be first, then go be a golfer, then go be, you know, a such and such, because you have to create that athleticism first, no matter what, Mm, right? Yeah. That's the foundation of whatever sport you want to play. So make yourself a better athlete in this off season. That's the first thing that'll make everything more fun. Cause in the summertime we like to hike and we like to do, you know, water ski and backpack and mountain bike and do all the things that we love to do. But if you train in the gym and you do, you know, a, a particular training program that's going to make you a better athlete, then all of those are going to improve. Right. Mm, yeah. And I don't know about you, but I like being really good at all sports, you know, as much as I can be. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say that that's the biggest thing. Choose something that one puts you out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe it's that downhill section on your mountain bike that you've always walked or ridden. You've always walked because you can't ride up it. <laughs> you know, maybe it's a small goal like that of attaining. Yeah. Maybe it's a PR. Maybe it's a, an uncomfortable event that you've never tried, but you've always wanted to. Mm. Put an event on the calendar. It's motivating, right? If it's June 1st, well, guess what? You got seven months to train and you get to look forward to how all of that uh, fruit that you get to eat on that day, June 1st, mm. from all that labor and how much fun it's going to be and all the enjoyment afterwards for the rest of the summer um, is, is going to help. So, And then think about, too, how training – I'm just going to keep it on training because that's what I am. <laughs> think about how the training is going to help you feel better overall, too. Right. We're all, I mean, gosh, we're pretty stressed out right now, you know, from all the crap that's going on in life um, Mm -hmm. across the board. So when you train, whether it's, you know, on your bike or in the gym, it's your body's way of expressing or eliminating, eliminating stress, right. That builds up that's mental stress from all the things that we're having to deal with that we haven't had to deal with before in, in most of our lives, actually. Um, so think of it that way too, living a less stressful life, being more relaxed. Mm. I, I'm a Christian. I would always say work on your spiritual life, right? That's always going to help you be happier, right? Um, and to, uh, go into 2022 with a better attitude because, you know, you have a, you have a better view or, or, or understanding of what's going on in the world. And you don't have to be so focused on all the garbly goop that everybody's talking about that is so pessimistic. And so dark, right? Like we have pretty good lives, even though there's a whole bunch of darkness around us, right? So focusing on the positivity of of of, uh, of life uh, helps as well. So eating clean makes you feel better. Doing things that make you feel better make 2022 the year because a lot of us have gotten stuck in ruts with mm, COVID, right? Yeah. Being inside and having to wear stupid masks, which you know, <laughs> oh, gosh, jeez. So doing things that you were doing before that you haven't been doing, I would also encourage you to do in 2022. Um, Getting back to your normal lifestyle habits and patterns Mm -hmm. without fear. Let fear be, you know, the thing that that leads you and guides you because you're taking risks, having fun, not living a normal life because of what people are telling you to do and what you should be afraid of. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's great. That's all excellent advice. And yeah, I love how it's, you know, it's holistic. I mean, it's not just about, you know, the physical and it's not just about the spiritual and the mental. I mean, it's all of those things and we can take control of that and yeah, have an awesome 2022. Well, Dee, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I know I learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners as have as well. So thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It's been awesome. I hope uh, everybody does have a great 2022 and uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, you can find more information about D and learn about the training programs that we talked about here at train to ride.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.